You're listening to the Christian Civics Podcast, exploring how the gospel empowers us to think, speak, and act differently in the public square. I'm your host, Rick Barry, the co-founder and executive director of the Center for Christian Civics. I was hoping to bring you our first book club episode last week, but it seemed untimely at best and inappropriate at worst, given the numerous stories that arose last week about police violence in Minneapolis and civilian threats against Black Americans in New York City. But it seems like the protests that those stories kicked off aren't likely to end anytime soon. And even if they do, we'll still be living in their shadow for a while, which means no time is really going to be better or worse than any other. So I'm just going to go ahead and release that episode later this week. First, though, I want to offer a brief and personal editorial on the protests and on the more heavy-handed responses to them. This is me speaking personally from my own experience and from the heart, and no one on the Christian Civics Executive Board or Advisory Council or the team that works on our curriculum has even read any notes for this episode. I can't speak for them, and I wouldn't presume to. This is just something I think is probably worth offering up as context for how I'm thinking about exploring the issues that these protests bring up, and some of the baggage I'll be bringing into our internal conversations about how we're going to approach these issues in our work. The police and military response to the protests that have sprung up in the wake of the killing of George Floyd is upsetting to me on a number of levels. The state using violent force against peaceful protests that represent a valid expression of rights that are articulated and enshrined in our Constitution is egregious and indefensible. I know from firsthand experience that tear gas, pepper spray, and other physically violent actions are being taken against crowds that are assembling peacefully. I've attended protests to prayer walk and I've attended because history suggests that more white faces in a crowd mean that the people working crowd control are going to be slower and less likely to behave aggressively toward the crowd. I was in a crowd that was standing still, hands lifted overhead, on the other side of a fence from law enforcement, when law enforcement fired tear gas into the crowd. This action was unprovoked, and it happened without any antecedent violence or threats of violence. Over the past week and in the weeks ahead, many ministry leaders will be struggling to put words together to properly articulate the depth of anguish people are feeling over these attacks, over the violence they incite, and over the violence that spurred these protests in the first place. As you do, it is more important now than ever to speak in ways that transcend the accepted terms of debate our culture has adopted. There is no question in my mind that the pain the protesters are articulating is a pain that is biblically validated. There is no question in my mind that a democracy militarizing its police force and mobilizing it against citizens who are lawfully exercising their freedoms of speech and assembly is a democracy that has behaved with a sinful level of irresponsibility. And personally, I believe that our aggregate failure to listen to or respond appropriately to decades and decades and decades of peaceful lamentation and cries for greater justice 
should probably puncture any illusions we may hold about our nation having some kind of uniquely Christian public character. That said, the Church cannot be satisfied with merely adopting or co-opting the language of the movement for justice. The majority of our pastors and public figures in the Church are not political activists, we're not historians of race and justice, and we're not experienced managers of public debate. It would be unseemly for us to assume that posture and those responsibilities now. It would risk making us appear to be dilettantes at best, or opportunists at worst. The thing pastors and ministry leaders can offer now, which political organizers cannot, is context. It's not enough for us to repeat or even share the anguish of those who are suffering, even though we should share it. It is our unique privilege to be able to place that suffering in a context that leads to blessing for the afflicted. It's not enough for our prayers to lament or confess or claim that we repent of racial bias and systemic injustice. Our prayers must model a vocabulary that helps those who pray with us to internalize the fact that racism isn't just bad, it's a sinful degradation of the God of the universe. It's not enough to pray for comfort for the grieving. Our prayers must orient those who pray alongside us in the fact that our faith is predicated on and our reality is sustained by a God who saw people suffering, even as a result of their own sin, and joined them in their grief. It's not enough to pray for an end to racism. Our prayers must reveal to people who are troubled by racial injustice that it troubles them because it's not what we're meant for and it's not what we're heading toward. To quote Leslie Newbegin, a man with an imperfect history but whose best glories have shaped my thinking and my discipleship probably as much as any other Christian leader, we have before us the vision of the holy city into which all the glories of the nations will be brought. All the glories of the nations. Every people group, every tribe and tongue. Lamenting hundreds of years of racial injustice isn't just good because racism is bad. It's good because it means our hearts long for the very thing God has promised. The other night, I had an impromptu conversation with two men who were closing up their business for the night as I was walking by. I said hello, and I meant to just leave it at that and keep going, but probably because the streets were so empty and they hadn't seen anyone else in a while— they struck up a conversation with me. We, of course, got to talking about the protests, and they said that they can understand protesting quietly, but not destruction of property. Why would you do that? I'm half Middle Eastern, but I'm functionally white. I'm third-generation U.S., raised suburban middle class, and honestly didn't know where the Middle East even was until seventh or eighth grade, I'm embarrassed to admit. I've always considered myself an American first before any other ethnic or cultural heritage. I've only been exposed to the potential of violence once in my life. A kidnapping that was over within a couple hours and ended up being more of a misunderstanding than anything else. And that one experience, that experience that ended in an apology and an offer to cover my medical expenses, and during which I had constant phone contact with friends and colleagues to ensure my safety— still left me with PTSD. Even now, I still get anxious if I'm in a cab or I'm in a lift and it misses a turn it was supposed to take. 
I told the men I talked with the other night that I can't imagine what it's like to grow up feeling like you're under siege or constantly under threat. And I'm not sure how to tell people, how to tell my countrymen who are dealing with that kind of trauma and grief, how they should be processing it. And they said that was true, that they'd never felt unsafe and that they didn't know how they'd react in a similar situation, even without the added stress of being tear-gassed. But Christians live our lives in the service of a king who told us that those who grieve are blessed, affirmed by God, because our sorrows now are articulating things that will one day be set right. We serve a God who calls the weary and the grieving to himself. We have a great high priest who made it his business to sympathize with our suffering, even when we brought our suffering on ourselves, and even when we took our suffering out on him by taking his life. I know that a lot of people listening to this probably have a hard time sympathizing with the grief being expressed and shared by many of our non-white countrymen, but their grief articulates ways in which our world falls short of the kingdom. Listening to it, deciphering it, that's an opportunity to get a clearer view of what that kingdom is like. I'm going to end this on a lighter note by tossing out an illustration from pop culture. I love the TV show Doctor Who. It's about an alien, who looks human, of course, named the Doctor, traveling around time and space, having adventures, and saving planets. A few years ago, they did a storyline where our hero thought he was becoming too famous, so he went around and deleted every record of himself from every database in history all around the universe. But it didn't take long for him to encounter a new enemy who tried to look him up and realized what he'd done, and then point out the flaw in the doctor's plan. Anyone could put together a usable bio and description of our hero just by looking for the gaps in the stories and figuring out what was missing. You can get a rough idea of what something's like by looking at the effect its absence leaves. The kingdom that is to come is a kingdom where every tear will be dried. There will be no more sorrow or grief. So the things that cause sorrow and grief now can teach us something about how our world is different from the world that is promised. If we can't understand that grief now, that's not an indication that the grief is wrong. It's an indication that we have an opportunity to learn. We can better understand the kingdom by better understanding the way people mourn its absence. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we are so, so sad at the destruction of human life and the violence and the abuse of force and the shattering of democratic norms we are seeing in our country. You've entrusted us with this responsibility of government, put us on a 300 million person monarch committee, and we have yet to live up to that awesome responsibility the way we hope to. Forgive us for Jesus' sake. We offer these prayers in the name of Jesus, who called those who are mourning, those who are afraid, those who are burdened to himself, and promised them rest and a lighter load. We offer these prayers in the name of Jesus, who called us to follow him, to be his hands and his feet in that work until he comes again. Forgive us for the things we don't know. Show us the things that are mistaken in us and lead us in a better way. 
Make the love you have for the world through us not just an emotion or a disposition, but a track record. We pray these things in the name of Jesus who went to the cross, praying for mercy and forgiveness for the people who were putting him there, because we knew not what we did or what we do. Amen. Thank you very much. We'll be back later this week.